At 6.01, on Sunday 11th December 2005, the first of a series of explosions took place. These explosions caused a huge fire which engulfed more than 20 large storage tanks over a large part of the Buntsfield depot. The fire burned for five days, destroying most of the depot. A plume of black smoke from the burning fuel rose high into the atmosphere and could be seen from many miles away and in satellite images. As it developed, this plume eventually spread over southern England and beyond. It took 32 hours to extinguish the main blaze, although some of the smaller tanks were still burning on the morning of Tuesday 13th December. Once all the fires were out on 15th December, the emergency services handed over the task of identifying what had caused the incident to a specialist investigation team from HSE and the Environment Agency. The long process of safely cleaning up the badly damaged areas on and around the site began within days. However, parts of the site remained too dangerous for investigators to access for weeks or months afterwards. These words from the Major Accident Investigation Board describe the immediate aftermath of what is officially described as the Buntsfield Incident of 11th December 2005. We'll talk about Buntsfield, disaster incubation and hazard management on DisasterCast, Episode 8. Hi everyone, my name is Drew Ray and this is episode 8 of DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. Each episode of DisasterCast is supposed to cover something old, something new and something out of the blue. Something old normally refers to an accident, but we'll be discussing quite a recent event, the Buntsfield Incident. To compensate we'll discuss quite an old bit of theory, disaster incubation. For something out of the blue, I'll provide my top six tips for hazard management. It was late on a Saturday night, and someone was filling their tank with petrol. It was a scene that could be happening in any service station around the United Kingdom. You put the hose in the tank and start pumping, then wait for that little click which shuts off the pump and tells you that the tank is full. Only, this wasn't a car petrol tank. This was tank 912 at the Hertfordshire Oil Storage Limited part of Bunsfield Depot. The little click was supposed to come from a device called the Independent High Level Switch. The word independent tells you that this was supposed to be a backup system. If you're filling your car, you are the backup system. If the switch doesn't work, you get petrol on your shoes and you stop pumping. For tank 912, there were two other systems to tell the operator how full the tank was. They had stopped monitoring these systems, 
relying instead on the independent high-level switch. To continue the analogy, this is as if you'd used duct tape to keep the petrol hose turned on, and then walked away, trusting that the pump would stop itself when the tank was full. Let's consider the design of the independent high-level switch, which was produced by an organisation called TAV Engineering. They knew that this switch was being used in high-risk environments, so they had a responsibility to consider hazards in designing the switch. It was a multi-purpose switch, which could be installed to trigger on either low levels or high levels. The position of a lever determined which mode the switch was in. A padlock was used to hold the lever in the correct position. In safety language, we have a hazard for the tank, which is to overflow. We are supposed to have multiple protections against the hazard, but our operations have evolved so that we're relying on a single protection, the independent high-level switch. This switch has a dangerous failure mode, which is to have the lever in the wrong position. The only protection we have against the failure mode is a padlock. This padlock does not actually exist. Hertfordshire Oil Storage Limited hired Motherwell Control Systems to install the tank monitoring. Motherwell Control Systems bought the switch from TAV Engineering, but never realised the safety significance of the padlock. They thought it was an anti-tamper device, and so they didn't bother to install it. To continue the technical story, early on Sunday morning, tank 912 overflowed, with 250,000 litres of fuel spilling into the area around the tank. A large vapour cloud formed, with a diameter of around 360 metres. Workers noticed this vapour cloud, and triggered the alarm and fire system. It's a good thing they didn't use the big red button on the tank filling console, because it wasn't connected to anything. Actually, it's not a great outcome anyway, because electrical sparks coming from the fire pumps were probably the ignition source for the subsequent explosion. At this point, our story gets a bit happier. Because it was in the early hours of Sunday morning, not many people were around. No one was killed, but 40 people were injured and 20 other fuel tanks caught fire. It was the biggest peacetime fire ever seen in the UK. Tank farms contain earth or cement barriers called buns, which are used to hold any spilled liquids. At Bunsfield, some of these worked, but some leaked badly, allowing burning fuel, fire suppressant foam and contaminated water to drain into the ground for a considerable distance around the site. The lessons from Bunsfield aren't new, but they are important. System safety requires operators such as Hertfordshire Oil Storage Limited to act as intelligent customers. Like many hazardous installation operators, they outsourced their safety analysis to a consultant without retaining enough in-house capability to assess, interpret and to use that analysis sensibly. The equipment they were using included application safety requirements, things that the operator needed to do to keep the equipment safe and to monitor its effectiveness. As it happened, 
they were never given these requirements. That's the fault of both the operator and the people who sold them equipment. It took more than the failed switch to cause the accident, though. First, the other means of monitoring the tanks had to become ineffective. There was evidence that this equipment was not working as it should, but no one was systematically collecting that evidence or acting on the knowledge. The operating procedures were not being followed, but again, this was not being monitored or assessed for the obvious safety implications. At a higher level of abstraction, no one had noticed that the defect recording system and the audit system were both defective. Strangely enough, no one told us we had a problem is not a very good excuse coming from a board of directors. One of the prime responsibilities a director of a hazardous installation has is to ensure that there is a robust safety management system in place so that they will know if a problem exists. My personal view is that this requires someone at director level with safety management as their main responsibility. The size of the explosion at Bunsfield is often given as one of the reasons why the containment was inadequate. All of the risk assessments assumed that a major spill and fire was the worst possible event at the site. An explosion was not considered possible. At face value, this seems like a reasonable excuse. The King's Cross Underground Fire illustrates that sometimes it does take a major accident to discover new and interesting ways for fire to behave. You could almost forgive the operators, consultants and regulators for their mistake if it wasn't for the fact that the BP Texas City disaster, nine months before Bunsfield, had an overfilled tank leading to a massive vapour cloud explosion. In the United Kingdom, oversight of hazardous installations is performed by a body called the Competent Authority, a joint effort by the Health and Safety Executive and the Environment Agency. The Investigation Board for Bunsfield included members of the competent authority, but it was largely independent. The portion of the investigation covering the regulator, known as the Policy and Procedures Report, was not released until 2012, after the criminal proceedings arising from Bunsfield had been settled. It is clear from this report and from other documents that there has been an internal soul-searching and improvement of the competent authority's own processes. The main organisations involved in the Bunsfield accident were required to provide the competent authority with a safety report, which includes reports of both predictive risk assessment and safety management systems. Bunsfield made very clear that the mere existence of this report is not evidence of safety. Whilst the regulator checks the adequacy of the safety report, it is not the responsibility of the regulator to make sure the report is true and adequate. That responsibility lies with the owners and operators of installations, and it's not an obligation that can be outsourced. The safety report in question had not been reviewed by the competent authority more than two years after it had been provided. The facility operator hired a consultant to write a report and then passed it on to the regulator who did not complete their review. In fact, no one had ever fully reviewed the risk assessment. 
American listeners at this point should stand tall. The best risk assessments in the world are performed by the Food and Drug Administration of the USA. Every risk assessment they do is peer-reviewed by a panel of experts, and both the risk assessment and the peer review are made public. Typically, the risk assessment is then revised and peer-reviewed again, all publicly available. Without any doubt, it is the quality and public nature of the review which makes the risk assessments themselves so good. Risk assessments, conducted in secret, reviewed in secret, and buried in restricted access filing cabinets, are possibly not worth the paper they're written on. In system safety research, the single biggest question is why do accidents still happen? The answer to this question determines how we go about safety management. If we blame accidents on bad luck, then there's nothing we can do to stop them. If we blame them on technical failures, we need to fix the technology. If we blame them on human error, we need to recruit and train better people. If we blame them on human-technology interaction, then we need to design systems that work well in cooperation with people. Most of the best-known models in safety are socio-technical. They explain accidents as caused by problems with both physical systems and with the organisations that design and manage those systems. In these models, we could just fix the technology, but that's actually only going to happen properly if we first have an organisation good at managing technology risks. Socio-technical models of safety typically attack the problem from three different directions. The first approach is to study accidents and to work out what those accidents have in common. This approach leads to ideas such as disaster incubation theory, normal accidents, and vulnerable system syndrome. The second approach is to study so-called high-reliability organisations, organisations who have a better-than-expected safety record, and to work out what those organisations are doing right. The third approach is to combine the two, to discover what accident-prone organisations do differently from high-reliability organisations. This third approach, whilst much more scientific, is sadly underpopulated. Today we're going to discuss one of the earliest socio-technical models that's based on a study of accidents. It's called Disaster Incubation Theory, and the main authors supporting it are Barry Turner and Nick Pidgeon. Barry Turner describes accidents as typically occurring after a period in which they, with the benefit of hindsight, could have been foreseen and prevented. This period is where the term disaster incubation comes from. During disaster incubation, the organisation can't seem to recognise the size or nature of the hazard which results in an accident. Turner talks about this as a form of collective blindness. Events which might challenge accepted beliefs about the hazard get downplayed or even ignored. Cultural blindness, whilst undesirable, happens quite naturally in large organisations. 
Organizations are like organisms attempting to, to survive and to achieve loosely defined goals within a complex and changing environment. If they tried to make every decision perfectly, using good information, they would very quickly become paralysed, unable to do anything. Instead, they form a simplified understanding of the immediate problems to be solved. In economics, this is called bounded rationality. There's a whole field of economics around bounded rationality, devoted to the rules of thumb that individuals use, instead of perfect, but impossibly complex, decision-making. If a significant hazard falls outside of this bounded understanding, it may appear to outsiders as if the organisation is willfully ignoring an issue of major safety concern. It has suffered, in other words, from cultural blindness. The main features of cultural blindness are number 1. Rigid perceptions and beliefs. In particular, a fixed understanding about what type of safety issues need to be actively managed and what type of safety issues are irrelevant. Number two, decoy phenomena. Distractions by other crises or priorities, sometimes even including other perceived safety problems. Number three, a disregard for the views of outsiders. In particular, they may dismiss safety concerns or treat criticism as a public relations issue rather than a safety issue. Number four, difficulty in assembling information within the organisation. Sometimes this is related to information being buried in larger communication or in messages intended for action being treated as for information only. Number five, Failure to apply existing regulation, perhaps because of a perception that that regulation doesn't apply or can't be reasonably applied in the current situation. And number six, minimisation of signs of danger. This is particularly bad when powerful people are complacent and junior people are trying to sound the alarm. Disaster incubation theory comes out of something familiar to us all. Major accidents always seem as if they could have been prevented. Many boards of inquiry will go so far as to explicitly say, this was a preventable accident. Perhaps we'd like to reassure ourselves that we wouldn't be involved in that sort of accident because we wouldn't make those same silly mistakes. Turner and Pigeon go one step further though. To the rest of us, what on earth were they thinking, is a rhetorical question. To them, it is a serious and important question, and their answer is somewhat frightening. What they were thinking, before the accident, was exactly what we are thinking now about our own systems. With a thousand and one issues to manage, and hundreds of people clamouring for their attention, they thought they were focusing on the key issues. They just happen to be wrong. How do we know that we aren't wrong when we think we are focusing on the right issues? The solutions, according to Turner and Pigeon, are partly cultural, partly organisational and partly technical. Culturally, 
there needs to be a focus on conflicting information. When information breaks a pattern of belief, that issue needs to increase in priority. That's especially true if the information comes from outside the organisation, or at least outside the central management group. Organisationally, there need to be good systems for gathering and processing information. This doesn't happen by accident. Organisations are great at collecting data they never use, or using data that was never systematically collected. Technically, safety needs to be treated as a structured problem. Formal risk identification processes, risk assessment aimed at prioritisation and understanding rather than justifying pre-existing beliefs, mitigation followed up with good processes for management and monitoring risk. Despite the methodological weakness in how disaster incubation theory was established, I am personally a big fan of the way it reaches for explanations beyond incompetence. It's too easy for us to look at disasters and find it inconceivable that we would make the same mistakes. I highly recommend Turner's original 1976 paper, The Organisational and Interorganisational Development of Disasters, as well as the more recent work by Nick Pidgeon. You can find strong elements of the theory in Diane Vaughan's thesis on the Challenger launch decision and Beth Kewell's study of the Bristol Royal Infirmary disaster. I spent the last two weeks teaching an introductory course on safety, primarily for non-safety engineers. Actually, it's a one-week course, so I was teaching the same material twice, and I realised that there are a number of things I say that aren't actually written down anywhere. So, this piece is a list of things that I say when teaching classes about safety that aren't currently in any textbooks or published papers. You could call it my top six list of practical tips for good hazard management. Tip number one. There is no such thing as a closed hazard. A lot of commercial tools and company practices for tracking hazards include an entry for hazard status with the final state being hazard closed. There really isn't any such state. After you've identified a hazard, there is always a next action that needs to be taken. For a newly identified hazard, the next action is to assess the risk. For a hazard with known risk, the next action is to choose a mitigation. Then, the next action is to make sure the mitigation actually happens. Then, the next action is to determine whether the risk is now acceptable. Then, the next action is to put in place mechanisms for ensuring the risk stays acceptable. Then, the next action is to review whether the monitoring system is actually working. Throughout the life of a system, for every hazard, you should always know what the next action is, when that action is due, and whose responsibility it is. Even if a hazard has been transferred to someone else it isn't closed, there's still a next action to periodically check that the other person is managing the hazard. There have been plenty of cases where hazards have been transferred to organisations that have then gone out of business or ceased to exist, leaving no one owning the hazard. Tip number two. 
Once the risk associated with a hazard has been estimated, it should never be changed without evidence. The easiest way to change an unacceptable risk into an acceptable risk is by crossing out the old estimate and writing a new one. In some cases, that temptation is simply too dangerous. If you believe that the original estimate was wrong, then you should be able to produce data which backs up your belief. If you can't produce that data, you've no reason to place your own judgment ahead of someone else's. This guideline includes a message for people doing the original risk assessment as well. If you don't know the answer, then label it as tentative and create an action for someone to follow up. Tip number three. There's no practical benefit to distinguishing pre-mitigation and post-mitigation risk. A lot of hazard logs ask you to record the risk before mitigation and the risk after. This results in all sorts of argument about which mitigations are pre-existing and which ones are the new ones. It's all irrelevant. There's no system I know of where risk acceptance and the acceptability of a risk is determined by how much the risk has been reduced from some imaginary original level. What matters is how much risk there is right now and whether there is anything that can be reasonably done to reduce the risk further. All hazard logs include tracking of the past history of the hazard log. There's no need to specially create an extra entry for pre-mitigation risk. Number four. Hazards are an engineering construct for the management of risk. They aren't a real physical thing. This means that there is no universally agreed definition of a hazard, and there's no single correct list of hazards for any system. The key is to define hazards at a way and in a level that makes them useful to manage. A good rule of thumb is that all of the hazards should be able to be discussed in a single meeting. If you have hundreds of hazards, then they are too detailed. If you have one or two hazards, they are too abstract. Hazards are simply a management tool designed to make things manageable. If they're not manageable, then you're using hazards wrong. Number five. Probability and severity are not actually numbers. The underlying reality is that for any event, there is a probability distribution of outcome severities. For convenience, we often use single-point estimates of probability and severity as a shorthand for this underlying distribution. Most of the time, this is the most sensible thing to do because we don't actually know what the underlying probability distribution looks like anyway. However, we get into trouble if we forget what the reality is. The most common time this happens is when people are arguing about the severity of a hazard. We are never trying to find the worst possible outcome. For all hazards, the worst possible outcome is always total destruction of human civilization. It just happens to have a very low probability. What we're trying to do is find a point on the probability distribution where the vast majority of the area under the curve is to the left of that point. If we remember this, it's much easier to usefully prioritise hazards 
rather than classifying everything as catastrophic. Number six. Every assumption creates an obligation for somebody. When you perform any sort of hazard identification or risk assessment, you make assumptions and you should record them. Every assumption then becomes a task for someone to go and make sure that the assumption is true or becomes true and another task for someone to make sure that the assumption stays true. That's just about it for this episode of DisasterCast. I've posted a very brief listener survey on the webpage at disastercast.co.uk. It basically asks which sections of the show you like and don't like, so I can tailor the show to suit the audience. It also gives you a chance to complain about the audio quality or the music, if you're into that sort of thing. The webpage also has transcripts of each show, and links to resources that I've used or mentioned. A big thank you to everyone who's rated the show on iTunes. It now appears on the rated listings, which helps others find the show. Thanks also to listener Eamon, who emailed with feedback and some suggestions for topics to cover. We'll be covering some of his ideas on the next few episodes. Hope sent an email following up on the segment about personal electronic devices, pointing me to a couple of accident reports where the pilot or driver was using their device to send text messages shortly before the accident. That's one causal mechanism I didn't cover, but I'm travelling by train, air and bus over the next few days, so I'm a little afraid to read the reports. DisasterCast is funded by I'm a Scientist, Get Me Out of Here. The theme music is A Disaster Anthem by Eden Prayer.